Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. winning Canadian artist. Christine Montagu, a portrait painter turned polar bear artist, paints dramatic polar bear portraits which show a bear that is intelligent, powerful, and amused to themes of wonder and hope, even under environmental threat. Born and educated in Montreal, Christine relocated to Toronto for work, but also studied communication and design at the Ontario College of Art. A move to Brampton, Ontario gave her an artist community she loved, and shortly after, Christine became a recipient of the Brampton Citizen Arts Acclaim Award. Later, she helped to create the Beaux-Arts Brampton Artist Cooperative and was the first occupant of Studio 2. But it was at her Halton Hill studio that she created her first polar bear painting in reaction to Sarah, Species at Risk Act, declaration that the polar bear was now a species at risk. The reaction to this painting helped fuel her further into exploring the subject matter of polar bears, northern lights, and vanishing sea ice, altering her career path. Now committed to the polar bear and the climate change story in her art, Christine has traveled to the Canadian Arctic and Subarctic to further her knowledge. She had two polar bear solo exhibits, Dark Water in 2018 and On Thin Ice in 2020. In addition, she was honored to paint the portrait of the oldest polar bear in captivity. Her bear art is now in collections across Canada, the U.S., the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, the Netherlands, and Denmark. Christine resides and creates in Mississauga, Ontario. At this time, please help me welcome Christine to the podcast. Hello, Christine. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for asking me. I'm so happy that you're here today. I thought we could start with this oldest polar bear in captivity. Who is this bear and where does this bear reside? Well, Boris, he's deceased now, unfortunately, but Boris was a rescue bear. He was at the uh, Point Defiance Zoo near Seattle. He lived to over 34 years old and he was rescued from a traveling circus. This circus, I believe, traveled through Europe and there was a group that was hoping to, you know, rescue the terrible conditions he and another polar bear were in. And it was there was quite an exciting story of they waited until the circus was in Puerto Rico, which, you know, was part of the United States. So now they had power to go in and seize these polar bears. And he was brought to the zoo and he was adored. This is one of the cases. Wild is always best, but this is a case where zoos hold a purpose. They had a home for him and they loved him and they treated him with such respect. And he just had a wonderful life. And then when he became too old, very arthritic etc. He didn't have to be in front of the public and they treated him well. And so I was commissioned by the vet. Uh, She knew the time was coming that, you know, Boris was coming to an end. So I was very honored to paint his portrait and learn about his story. 
And so you got involved with this uh, 2011 and you just started to research these bears. What was it about the polar bear in particular that drew you in? Well, I originally had, you know, in my youth, my first degree was a biology degree. And if I had sort of followed that path, actually, I didn't know this type of thing existed. I didn't know you could do like polar bear research. I lived in Montreal. We were very disconnected from that type of nature. And, you know, in in the lab, I worked with rats. So the two animals, just because I really like, I like all animals, but I really like North American animals. And the two animals I liked were the polar bear and the wolf. And so I didn't know that much about polar bears. I didn't know how intelligent they were. I didn't even realize they were like the largest predator. I just knew they were a big bear. I liked the look of them. I was always fascinated by the Arctic. I hadn't been there, but I have a brother that's quite a bit older than me. And he lived in the Arctic all in his youth working. And so I never made it up there, but it held that fascination for me, the stories he told and what he experienced. So polar bears just intrigued me. And then just the idea that they're saying that we might not have polar bears, you know, they were predicting all kinds of things at that time. Um, I didn't even understand why we wouldn't have polar bears. I knew climate change, but I didn't understand the relationship to the sea ice Mm -hmm. and seals and So I just did this portrait because here was this beautiful animal. It's like as if somebody loves tigers and suddenly you're told the tiger is going, which it is. So I just, because I'm a portrait artist, I painted this big portrait of a polar bear. And about half my business is portrait art. And so when I painted the polar bear, I was used to doing things like dogs. And I couldn't get over, it was actually hard to do a polar bear face. It has quite a different structure. It's not just a big dog or a big wolf. It was different. I was getting a good reaction to this painting. And then I just started little polar bear portraits to try and figure out how in the heck their face went, how that snout went and, you know, the eyes and the ears because they're different. And it just sort of evolved from there. So how many polar bear portraits do you think you've painted since that time? I would say about 300. I meant to count them. I have it, but I'd say about 300. Now they're all different sizes. It's not like I've produced 300 gigantic canvases, but probably about 300 polar bear paintings, but I still do other work, but the polar bear art, that's the big passion. And so since you started this study, you've had the opportunity to actually go to Churchill. Is that correct? Yes, at first I went to the Arctic. I was now sort of deciding maybe I was going to focus on polar bear art. I didn't know what angle I was doing at it. I wasn't interested in being what they call like, you know, like a wildlife artist. I didn't want to like sort of show the bear on the tundra. Here's the bear in a snowstorm. And, you know, I didn't want to do that type of thing. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wanted to connect it to this threat to them. It wasn't just about a portrait of an animal. And it's very expensive to go to the Arctic. And by luck, I had a niece who lived and worked in the Arctic, but she was always very busy in her work. And she told me if I, you know, if I was sort of ready to go, she would tell me when she would be free that I could join her in the Arctic. And I would spend time there. And I I, I got a a phone call. I'm walking through a mall and she sort of goes, can you come next week? (laughs) I was sort of like, yes. And then I took off and I got to go first to Callowit. And I was in a Callowit for a day. And by walking around and seeing it was very interesting to see because that is where my brother had been 
you know, years and years and years ago as a young man, but then it was called Frobisher Bay. And so I was curious to see it. But then we got on a little plane and we went to Cape Dorset and spent, I guess, five days in Cape Dorset, which was absolutely fabulous. And I didn't see polar bears, but I saw freshly killed polar bears for the bread. So they were now being stretched on the big stretchers they put the skins on. But I didn't actually see polar bears, but it was a constant threat. You had to always be alert. It turned out as soon as I got up there, my niece had an emergency and I was really on my own, except we regroup at night. So I was on my own and I just walked the town and um, people were incredibly friendly and but just constantly because I was photographing so much, constantly being warned, keep your eye out for polar bears, keep your eye out for polar bears. And they people keep their doors unlocked. The houses have like a little sort of Arctic addition that it helps keep your house insulated. So it's almost like a closed in porch that's all wood. They might keep a freezer or something in there. And that's always open. So if you were to see a bear just head into the first person's house they're not going to mind and get out away from the polar bear. Give you a different appreciation being in the polar bear's environment, seeing what that's like? Yes, I cannot say how beautiful the Arctic is. I've been in every province of Canada and the Arctic is just a whole other level and it's just incredible. It's like nothing else. And I've heard of Ibiza sort of maybe love it right away. Like when you see it, I just saw it from the plane and just knew like when I was looking at the landscape and just knew I was in love or you might see it as very barren and scary. So it was, it, it was really interesting to see this little town. You understand just how isolated they are and they're on the water. It's a case of, you know, the people are there and it's on the polar bear path to access the water so you can see that it's a worry there there's actually quite a nice playground park that they put out on a bay but we took this young girl that my niece knew and we went there and we took her to the park and you could see she was very worried that because they really do blend in with the landscape that a polar bear could just appear and so she actually insisted we keep the doors of the car open the idea that we can run to the car so her 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 fear was palatable. That's someone who lives there. So you understand this is a reality. You're not worrying about raccoons. You're actually at risk, you know, that polar bears come. And of course, you're cooking and they, they have incredible sense of smell and that could draw them or you have a dump. You can't help it. There's no place to put garbage. It's just inevitable you're going to collide with a polar bear. Mm-hmm. That must be incredible, though, to witness the, the level of fear in the in the locals, and yet you're coming in as a visitor, and then to realize this is a very real threat. Well, that's it. I'm there, like, I want to see a polar bear. I've almost got my camera, and I'm walking around. I don't know what I thought I was going to do if I saw one, like, on the road in front of me. Like, you know, it's like gra- they're gravel roads. It's not like paved. I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but that's how naive I was. I was just like, oh, cool. I've got my little telephone lens. I'm a tourist looking at black bears in Banff or something. It was a very ignorant view of, of life up there. I just sort of realized that this is like a serious thing where a polar bear will just kill you. <laughs> and it won't be a nice death. There's a show called Fortitude, and one of the first lines is they talk about, like, the polar bear kills you as it eats you. But I think that comes, too, from we're used to seeing animals in captivity in zoos. That's it. We're just, everything we do is so safe. 
our houses are so safe. We have like the brick house, not like the little sort of wood portable house. It's just so different. And we're just so ignorant of everything. Now, so the next year I went on a learning vacation because I really wanted to see polar bears on the land. So I did go up to Churchill now in Manitoba. And Churchill on Hudson Bay is the polar bear capital of the world. Like Canada has 60 to 80% of the polar bears population and a good amount of them from travel through Churchill, going to Hudson Bay for waiting for it to freeze so they can take out on the ice and hunt the ring seal, which is their, their primary source of food. So that's why it has such a tourism thing to go see the polar bears. And I went on a learning vacation where I stayed at the Churchill Northern Studies Center, which is out on the tundra. It's not in the town. And it's where scientists go to do their research. And they fund this center by having ecotourism. You know, you stay in bunk beds and where the scientists would stay. And, and then you go out on the tundra vehicles, the tundra buggies, to see the polar bears. And it's very non-invasive. What happened was Churchill actually used to be an American Air Force base and it had like a missile silo. And then they soon discovered, yeah, nobody was fighting up there. (laughs) It's like such extreme. They never had to use the missile silo. But what they did do was a whole lot of rocket launches that studied the Northern Lights. And it's the place where they got really a lot of information on the Northern Lights because the Northern Lights, you will be guaranteed to see them in Churchill. They're every night almost, you know, if it's not too overcast, all year round. It's fabulous. And then I got to see the polar bears. So because there's old roads that haven't been removed, but they're disrepair, that's where the tundra buggies go. They're not just like traveling. Only two companies have the rights to go on the roads and they have to stick to these roads. So no tundras being destroyed. It's just amazing the wildlife you see and you're not really interfering with it and they're very very strict so if somebody was to drop food down to polar bear that comes over and looks or try to touch them or whatever that tundra buggy trip would be over and you'd have a bunch of very angry people and you'd be back so on the tundra buggy is like you're in the zoo you're the zoo animal so if a polar bear wants nothing to do with you they're highly highly intelligent if they want nothing to do with you They don't come anywhere near you, but because they're curious and they're wondering what you are, they're like the zoo visitor. They come over to you in your cage of the tundra buggy and they check you out because, well, that was interesting. And then they go on on their way. So it's a, a wonderful experience. And you've continued to support polar bears and research into them with a recent work that you did called Dark Water. Oh, yes. So I did a painting called Dark Water. If what they want to just see is a portrait of a beautiful polar bear, that's fine by me. The polar bears I am painting are fine in that moment. I'm not showing the starving, dying polar bear. In that moment, the polar bear is fine. So in this particular painting, a polar bear is sort of in dark water. It's at night and the polar bear sort of turned almost in like a question mark sort of curve and sort of looking back at us. But the problem with the polar bear is it, it, it its body is so developed. Majority of what it eats, although they will snack on berries and you've heard stories about them eating bird eggs or whatever, what it needs is the fat of the ring seal because their body is developed that fat 
fat goes almost immediately absorbs into their fat. It's a very efficient process. And it's that fat that insulates them for the cold and lets pregnancy go to fruition. And it's that fat they need to survive. And that's why other animals sort of follow them around because they'll leave other parts of the body. So then the little Arctic fox can eat the other parts because they're primarily interested in eating the fat of the seal. So when we have climate change and when the open water, instead of the frozen ice, so when that period is extending, they are actually not eating. They're like on a fast until the frozen ice comes again and they can hunt the seals. So the sooner spring happens and that ice melts and then the longer it takes to freeze up, it means it might be eight months that a female polar bear isn't getting to eat. She's going to starve. And if she's pregnant, her body is going to say that pregnancy isn't going to survive the winter and it's going to get reabsorbed into her body. And so there won't be a pregnancy. And that's why it's so important why we have to immediately get a control on emissions and break this cycle. So to get back to this painting, it's in dark water and then it's up to the viewer to imagine how far out of the picture frame is the next ice flow they're going to, you know, could be a few feet out of the picture frame or maybe there is none. So that won an award, which led me to have a show that I called the same thing, Dark Water. So all the paintings pretty well were about polar bears in this dark water. But it's asking that question, where is the ice? Where are we now? That was the long answer. Sorry. You've also been involved in a couple of other initiatives outside of the polar bear. Could you talk about the True Patriot Love Foundation and what you do for that? Oh, so the True Patriot Love Foundation is a charity that raises money to help Canadian veterans, soldiers, and their families, because veterans don't suffer alone, and the whole family you know, if there's an issue, needs help. So it's giving programs in whether it's education or rehabilitation or uh, there's just a huge variety of initiatives they fund. And they hold an incredible fundraiser every year that pre-COVID was quite an affair. I think it used to be held at the Toronto Convention Centre. And because it's quite important work, we have a lot of veterans that need help. There's people out there that don't realize Canada was at war. There's injured people who need help, and they're still waiting for help. So what one of the things they do is it's every artist gets a helmet, or sometimes it's celebrities get a helmet, and then you paint it, and they auction the helmets off, and it's quite a good fundraiser. And my helmets always are with polar bears, because the polar bear is actually the Army's mascot. Uh, Juno the polar bear was born on D-Day, and she became an honorary member of the armed forces. And one of the sayings with the army is hurry up and wait. And the army are always waiting for that time they're needed. And polar bears are sort of doing that too on the ice. You know, they're really focused to get to that edge of Hudson Bay, but then they have to wait. And how long do they have to wait? Who knows? So that's part of my message in the helmets. And also that polar bear mothers are very good mothers. And that plays into the Canadian Armed Forces thing where, you know, we're the peacekeeping thing, helping people, you know, that image that they like to promote. They do help people. They are good. Great initiative. And it's amazing that continue to be part of it. 
I was just looking back at your bio. So as you mentioned, while you were talking about the polar bears, you studied biology, then you went on to communication and design, but you've had a long history as well, working with artist cooperatives. Can you speak a little bit about how you got involved with Beaux-Arts and then later on you were at the Halton Hills studio and what that's been like? I'm not involved with any community now, but I'm a big believer in artist communities and how much they help artists, especially if you're trying to create a career as an artist. The support that you get just being around other artists, I find artists incredibly generous. You know, artists are amongst the most educated group in Canada, and yet they're like the least paid. And we used to laugh, like I can remember one time seeing someone was protesting for a group that they wanted to raise minimum wage and we were all laughing so our goal is minimum wage <laughs> you know it's it's really tough to be an artist in Canada it's not that you can't make it and it certainly has helped social media has really helped people launch careers now it's changed very fast but uh, you can have the support of an arts group have affordable workspace and it can be vital. You have a whole pile of mentors, not just one mentor. You have a whole pile of people that I just find artists, it's not like in books, they're not backstabbing and they're supportive and the greatest volunteers I've met are artists. They just give so much usually to their community as well as to help whatever venue they're in. I, I can't say enough how I feel it's important to have an artist community and what a positive thing they, they are. So I'm from Montreal. I was living in Toronto. And because I was married and my husband, where his work was, we had to move to Brampton. And I can remember sitting on this street, waiting for the movers to go out and going, what am I doing here? But you know, a week later, I went into a little art store that was on the main street at the time. And I asked, was there an art group or anything? I mean, I didn't know anyone in Brampton. We didn't really have family in Ontario or anything. And they told me about an art group that had just started up called Visual Arts Brampton. And somehow the lovely people that joined that, I showed up at the meeting, plumped into this art group. And from there, because it lost the space it was in, I was part of a small women's group called Artbeat. And it was the small women's group that they were trying to find a home and they had told that they could write a proposal to get into this empty space in downtown Brampton. They wondered if I wanted to be part of it and I sure did. So for a very tiny rent, when I didn't have a lot of cash flow, I figured I could wing that money. But physically, I had to help renovate the space. So it was gallery and some studios and a workshop at the back. And I did. And it was one of the most wonderful things. I did have the reward of the studio. It was just the most one of the most wonderful things I was ever involved with. It was so exciting to get this gallery and our studio spaces open. And it was so well received by the mayor at the time. And uh, a lot of people, because of this space, actually started full-time careers where they earned their living being an artist. And this let me, when I had three young children at home, so it really was a matter of dropping my kids off to school, being very organized, race up to the studio, do whatever, race down, pick them up, you know, come home. But it worked and it let me be an, an artist. And from there I went to, I found this other place called now it's changed its name, but it was the Williams Mill Visual Arts Center. And I got a fabulous studio there. 
And that was just also a wonderful experience. And once again, artists that because of affordable workspace and an inspiring workspace and that they actually had, it was a venue that was sort of touristy, so you'd get people coming in to see it. Now you even had a place to sell your art without, you know, a gallery that you could build a clientele. It was really quite wonderful. And it's very important, I think, in the life of an artist. But as I said, it has helped now. Social media has changed so much so fast that now you can create a following on Facebook and Instagram. But that's really in less than 10 years time that's changed that didn't used to exist. And do you still connect with a lot of those artists from those spaces? Probably online. I don't live near there anymore. It's over an hour's drive. But you do make wonderful connections there that if I was to contact someone and say, how would you like to work together on something? Like it builds such strong connections. Those connections are really important because they do carry over outside of those spaces. Yeah, I just find there, for me, being uh, sort of introverted, that you're supplied like a wonderful community of intelligent, hardworking, creative people. It certainly helps me. Mm -hmm. How has COVID affected you and your working and your practice? Has it changed things? Do you feel that things have evolved more online? How has it been a part of your journey? Last year, I read a lot of science fiction books. So, And I listened to CBC Radio, who has talked about the pandemic coming for like the last four years, like to be prepared and all that stuff. So when it hit, I was a bit horrified, but a little bit prepared about what we could do and we had interest in. So because I do have a beautiful little studio that's a separate building, and for the first year, it gave me more studio time because life simplified. And so I wasn't sort of as the matriarch of our family that people tend to come to me to solve things or help things. Life was simplified. We're all all in our places. And I can just go out to this beautiful studio. I have a lovely backyard. Go out to this beautiful studio and add even more time to work. And for some reason, I'm not too sure what happened. I got more commissions from people I didn't know, especially in the States, that like the Boris, the polar bear that just came out of the blue. And I just went from commission to commission. And so I actually had purpose and that gave me a reason to say, well, I'm getting dressed, going out, working in the studio, you know, but I think I'm like other people Somewhere around in March, I had my first grandchild born. And because we live in this high COVID-y area, we were in a very hot zone. Suddenly, it really hit home to me. You can't touch your grandchild. You can't hold your grandchild. All those type of things. And I found that affected me quite badly. Suddenly, it sort of broke me a bit. (laughs) Because... I wanted to be doing studio, but I also wanted to be knowing this little grandchild. It was very exciting. Because I got went into this sort of languishing phase, it did affect me personally about how creative I felt. But I've come out of that. You know, it's it's summer and now we've had vaccinations and all those things have happened very much sooner than expected. And now I'm getting back into commissions and the helmet and I've got a commission that I can't talk about yet. First of all, congratulations on your granddaughter. That's very exciting. It's always interesting because as artists, we are people that like to be alone, but it just shows you the ebb and flow of how we work because there are connections that are important and family is part of that. And I think COVID really showed us that, you know, we need that balance, even though as artists, we probably think, 
well, you know, it's great to be on our own in our studio. We still do feed off of people's energy and that life force that's around us. So I'm glad that you're back and working because that's exciting as well. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> so as we wrap up, I always ask my guests to uh, recommend a book that they think would be great for other artists and creatives to read. What would you put on your reading list at this moment? Well, because I found my my reading has changed because of COVID. I love business art books. And normally I would sort of recommend like whatever business art book I just read that I thought was helpful. But, you know, between the combination of COVID changing everything, that things are all moving online and just things are changing so fast. I find really so much advice is it's just out of date, even though it's not old. And uh, so the books I've been reading for about the last year and a half really are sort of fiction escape type thing. And here's the thing that I hadn't thought about. The COVID has changed my concentration, you know, always being alone a little bit. I actually read when I can't sleep. The books that I really enjoy, and a lot of people don't probably know about them, are the Louise Penny Inspector Gamache detective series. And I love it on multiple levels. One is that it's Canadian and she lives in Quebec. And I spent all my life until I was about 25 in Quebec. And she talks so honestly about life in Quebec and she's one of the few books, I think, that have ever mentioned the big exodus of Montrealers in the late 70s and early 80s because of the political thing that just divided. People don't realize that the Anglophone families were just split completely apart because all young people had to leave for work or people's companies left. And so even if you were older, you end up in Ontario or down in the States or whatever. And I'm of that age group. And so she talks a little bit about that. But the biggest thing is the first series of books, our uh, husband and wife team are visual artists. And she so accurately lets you see into the mind of how insecure you feel, not only financially, but emotionally as an artist, and how the art is hard. And the littlest thing you do to a painting, it it sounds crazy, can kill a painting. She talks quite accurately about creating uh, visual art. So you get a mystery, you get some Canadian history, you get a cast of characters, and you get artists. So they really are fun books. Well, I love asking this question because I am not kidding you when I say my reading list is expanding daily. (laughs) Every time I ask an artist or a creative person, they have given me so many great books to look into. So thank you for that. Christine, this has been wonderful. It's been absolutely amazing to hear about your journey into the world of polar bears and painting these portraits. I appreciate your time. So thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you for, for asking me. This is wonderful. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing what this mystery commission is about. So I'm going to follow along on your art journey and see what comes in the next little while. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.